Hey guys, Vogon here. Glad to be finally back after a small break. So, first of all, I would like to apologize for delaying episodes, but, you know, it has been a somewhat of a tough time for me. I mean, honestly, mostly due to my mental health, and it has really made me slow down in the production and editing of the show. So, again, apologies for that. Um, I would like to thank you all that have listened to the podcast last year. I'm still getting new people listening to it daily, and it makes me feel honored that you decide to dedicate your personal time to listening to it. So thank you all once again for that. It is really, really appreciated. On a note, I am um, thinking of doing a, bu- a bit of a, of a change, both in the format as well as other things that will probably be coming up. So, you know, more on that in a near future. For now, on with the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Thonk, a podcast about the mechanical keyboard hobby and what makes it design complex metal rectangles. My guest this episode is a mechanical keyboard enthusiast turned designer. Responsible for projects such as Ursa, Amalfi and Polybius, he also has one of the most interesting design ideas for a keyboard currently out there, and even joked about having a truck go over it to prove a design concept. Nathan Alphaman, welcome to the talk. Thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, man. Really a pleasure. So, as you probably are aware, uh, we always start with some some you know usual questions to everyone, and the first one obviously being the most cheesy and worst one of them all. But what got you into the mechanical keyboard hobby to start with? Yeah, so I think this is a story that's similar to a lot of people that are in the hobby. But I was upgrading my uh, computer. I was a you know few years old, uh, and you know I I was upgrading it with with just the release of the, the RTX 2080s, or the, the RTX series of cards. So wanted to do like a really nice hardline water cool build, my first one, really just go balls to the wall. I ordered a custom case for it. Um, it's just, you know, super clean build. And with the new build, I was also like, you know, let's, let's upgrade my peripherals. So I got myself a glorious mouse. I got myself like a nice um, ultra-wide Acer monitor. And then I was like, okay, I need a new keyboard. Because at the time I was using a WASD full size with Cherry MX Blues in it. Oh, the blues. Um, oh. The blues. And so I started researching new keyboards. At first it was just like Googling, hey, like best keyboards 2018, or I guess no, 2018, 20, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, best keyboards of the year. Uh, and it was just like coming up with Logitechs and Corsairs and Razors. And I was looking into them and reading them. And you know how it is. Like when you Google something, YouTube recommendations um, get affected, especially if you're Googling things a lot. And so I started watching videos on YouTube from like Hardware Canucks and other, you know, tech tubers about yeah. keyboards. Typical. When one yeah. day I was recommended a video from a little known channel called uh, Teha Types. Oh, that little known channel. <laughs> little known channel. <laughs> Um, and I think the title of the video was like $950 keyboard question mark, question, question mark. And I was like, oh my God, what is this BS clickbait title? And I clicked on it. (laughs) And so I watched, I watched through the video. Uh, it was like a two hour live stream of him building the, um, Kepler from project keyboards. And I was like, whoa, this is super cool. But what, who would ever spend so much money on a keyboard? So I kind of forgot about it. Um, a week or two later, another video from Teha popped up in my recommended. And this time he was building like, um, don't remember what it was, some some proto 60%. And it was like much more reasonable price, a little bit cheaper. Uh, and I think what got me to like look at the description was the keycap set. I don't remember exactly what it was, maybe Olivia or so, but I would really like the keycaps on the board. Um, and I was thinking about swapping keycaps anyway for if I had bought like, um, some sort of off-the-shelf keyboard. So yeah. I clicked through and I was like, how do I buy these keycaps? And like, it dropped me on GeekHack. I was like, oh God, what is this? Oh. This form is pulled straight from 2003. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I just started reading through the pages. And at first it was like, I was reading it with with almost, I wouldn't say a sense of disgust, that's the wrong word, but like... Yeah, what, this, is, what is this? This, this? this this wonder where I'm like, I can't believe people actually spend this much money on this type of stuff. So it was like, 
I was amazed at what I was reading and I was just so fascinated by what I was reading. And so I just kept reading and I kept going back to the site and I kept going back to the site and I don't know what did it, but at, at, there was at some point where I was just like, okay, this is it for me. I want a high-end custom keyboard. Um, I ordered, you know, a set of uh, GMK Cafe and I got like a custom wooden case off some guy on Reddit. Um, and, you know, for the, because GMK Cafe didn't ship till much, much later, um, I ended up getting some like sort of essay, you know, cheap Chinese set off of uh, ABD fans and like built my first keyboard. I really loved it and I kind of been hooked ever since. So on that note, right, so, so being hooked ever since. So when did you actually realize yourself that you had taken that red pill and you had gone really deep into the rabbit hole? Because again... You know, we we know that most people would buy a keyboard, uh, and you know, even even in that sense of getting custom keycaps, etc. But that's it. But where did you realize yourself? Oh, that's it. I'm in too deep now. Um, this is actually a really good question because I feel like there's a there's a few points I could pinpoint to going deeper and deeper. Um, I think like the first one is like when I started joining keyboard discords. That was like already a big step for me because I was never really like a social person online, didn't interact with people online much ever, just, you know, friends from school, you know, talk with them, but yeah. never, never meeting people online. Um, but I think like the, the obvious, like, oh, hey, this is, I'm deep in the rabbit hole now is when I bought and built a keyboard for my girlfriend just because I wanted to build another keyboard. Yeah, you know, and as I thought an it excuse. was stupid for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was stupid for me to have more than one keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I, know, I have 16 feeling. sitting behind me. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just, I bought and built her one as an excuse. And I think that's like a great, like, yep, this, this was the moment. Cool. So talking about those 16 keyboards, so what are you currently typing on yourself? Um, at the moment, I have an MGA standard Alice in front of me um, with the Heine FR4 plates, uh, H1 switches, and GMK Oblivion. Mm. Um, I was going to build the Tengu, which I just got in earlier this week uh, from Project Keyboard. It's like a beautiful looking board, but I don't have any switches lubed and I don't like lubing switches, so I've just been putting off the build. Okay. So how do you find the Alice layout, by the way? I love it. I did not expect to like it. So first off, I did not expect to like it because I'm not a fan of 60%. Okay, um, yeah. I much prefer 65% because I like dedicated arrows. Like I don't mind pushing FN and using WASD to navigate, but it's nice to just have that dedicated layer so I don't need to do that step of pressing the extra key. Um, that being said, I still use 60%. I have an IDB60 and I have a JO2 and they're both lovely boards and I love them. Um, but, you know, if, if I had a choice, I would, you know, use the JO1 over the JO2. Cool. So going to, to, that actually ties with the next question that we have, that is, do you even small? So now, obviously, you already told me that uh, 60 is not probably your favorite form factor. So what what is your, you know, definite form factor favorite? And why is that? 65 or 75%. I don't really have a huge preference between the two. I love having dedicated function keys. Uh, just because I use them all the time for like my workflows, yeah. but they're not necessary for me. Um, so 65% is also great. And I think there's one other layout that I'm going to fall in love with, and that's the Adeli layout by ABEC 13. Um, it's 55%, uh, I guess. So mm. it's your standard 65% layout, but he chops off the number. Um and this is like a great little compromise because I have two 40% boards, the Equinox from Ion and AIO3 and the 45 ATS from ABEC 13. And they're both lovely little boards, but the lack of punctuation is a huge deal breaker for me. Yeah, um, I know what you mean. It's just, I don't like needing to use layers to type an apostrophe. Um, yeah. So... Same as me. I, I, yeah. I, I don't really... That's the only thing about, about certain 40% and stuff that, that gets me is, is punctuation, which is curious. But, you know, I just feel that, you know, I use dots a lot. I use, uh, like you said, apostrophes, etc. And, and, you know, just having to go into a function road to just type that, that's a bit, you know, that's a bit yeah. too much for me too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's 
which is why I think I'm really going to like the Adeli once it comes, because it's it's smaller. I don't need numbers as much as I need punctuation. Um, sure, I use numbers, you know, a decent amount um, if I'm like doing doing CAD work and things like that. And, I, you know, the, the punctuation that's on the number as well, I use, you know, a decent amount, especially like exclamation point um, parentheses. But yeah. At the very least, having dedicated punctuation keys will be really nice, in my opinion. Yeah, but that, but that, but that's the funny thing about about that I realized, you know, especially when you have more. Obviously, is, you know, people that start out and only have one keyboard and only plan to have one keyboard is different. But you know, when we have like you and me, we have uh, you know more than ten. Uh, the good thing about it is that is that you can always uh, adapt. You know, now I'm going to work on CAD. I'm going to use my seventy five for my. 75% and then you know I'm going to play a game or whatever and you can always play around because you have several of them and obviously the, the pleasure of having several of them is using them right it's not just having yeah. the one on a wall but also using them rotationally so that's cool that's the, the, the rotationally is the other half of that I try to use a new keyboard every day or two days so today oh, cool. I'm typing on the MGA standard Alice so 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 you actually change it every two days. I, I'm I'm more of a two week or one week kind of guy, but you do. Yeah, I I used yeah. to be I used to be on the one week side, and I don't know. <clears throat> I guess it depends on my moods. I just got home from being in college where I only had one keyboard. Oh yeah, so now, now you have my collection <laughs> again. So maybe it's yeah. just a little bit of excitement of, of being home and having the keyboards with me again. Obviously, man. Obviously, right. So on that note, so do you like them stiff? Or do you like them wiggly? And now that could be a double-edged question, but we're talking about keyboards here, right? So what is your favorite keyboard mounting style so far? Yes. <laughs> so I think it really depends. Um, I love them both, right? Like I I love carbon fiber plates, especially with tactile switches. It's super satisfying. It sounds great. Um, I have my J01 built with a carbon fiber plate and psychos and typing on it is like typing on popcorn popping in a microwave i guess it's just like an explosive feeling it's so much fun um each stroke is so loud and poppy and it's great but i also like them wiggly i have um again the equinox and the idb60 and those are both plateless keyboards um that are pcb mounts and those are also like really fun in their own rights I actually like, yeah, I actually like um, the PCB mount only. I actually enjoy yeah. that. You know, feeling just the PCB, it's, it's actually very enjoyable. It is It is nice. If yeah. I had to pick one, at the moment I would pick stiff and like super stiff, like carbon fiber. Got um, it. I really love how carbon fiber plates feel. I think it sounds great. <clears throat> That's my big issue with plateless is I don't think they sound as good as uh, keyboards with stiff plates. Yeah, um, see what you mean. They do feel nice, but they they lack a little bit of that nice, clacky, thocky feel that you really get from a from a nice carbon fiber plate. Yeah, because the sound obviously dissipates a lot in that. Mm -hmm. In you know, without plate, obviously there's no resonance, so also the the sound also dis dissipates a lot, right? Right. Next question, and obviously this one probably not an easy one, but ergo what, bruv? So. What are the limits of ergonomics to you? You already spoke about Alice layouts, but do you go full splurgo and split gang or that's not for you? I have one split keyboard, um, the Iris. Uh, okay. And it's, it's behind me. It's nice because it's, it's um, five by six or something. I don't, I don't remember exactly how these uh, ortho splits work. But it's got a number on it. But again, it's this lack of punctuation. Um, I think I could easily go full splurgo if uh, I had those punctuation keys, right? If you just took the Alice layout and split it in two, it would be great. Um, got it. Even something like the uh, Project Keyboard Kendo, I think I could drive with. It's just that there's so many, most of the split layouts are um, 40% or so. And it's just that that issue of being small for me, and I don't want to learn an entirely new typing system, and, and need to know, like relearn the muscle memories just for these little keyboards. Yeah, I know what you mean, man. It is that right. I think it's a, it's a bit of a 
of uh, you really want to to have uh, the dedication to learn it. Uh, and again, you know, we had a Splurgo representative already on the podcast, and they would tell you that yeah, it's just a question of learning it, and it makes much more sense uh, ergonomically, and obviously your fingers don't move that much. But I also feel the same. Is that you know, there's a there's for me at least there's too much of a, an effort. Not that I'm lazy, but there's too much of an effort now, at least in my age, because I'm an old fart, to you know invest and just find that thing. You know what I mean, and, and just to to use them. So I love them. I always, always say say this on the podcast, but I really love the forty percent layouts and and splur goes because I like to build. So they offer a little, you know, a long pleasure on building them. But yeah, but it's a bit of a hard thing to do. I prefer my staggered thing, right? For sure. Right. So now, obviously, we are going to go with uh, with more of a dedicated dedicated questions for you. And, um, you know, I would like to start by discussing the designer concept, because obviously you are a designer in keycaps and boards. Uh, and I would like to discuss this topic with you, which is what does the designer mean to you? You know that there are mixed feelings in the community. Some people, especially mostly uh, regarding key sets that people say, oh, you know, it's just putting colors together, whatever. Um, there's people speaking about designing. What do you see as designer in the hobby? So for me, this is really an issue of terminology because I come from a school of thoughts where a designer is not what we typically think of in this hobby as, you know, someone who, who picks colors or um, maybe more colloquially someone who uh, create, you know, creates the feel behind things. Um, so, you know, like a website designer will lay out the whole thing, you know, create the experience for the person navigating it. Uh, you know, an interior designer will create a mood for your home. Um, but I come from a school of thought where, where a designer is a problem solver. Designers identify needs and figure out how to solve them. Uh, a great sense. little anecdote about this is... Um, there's a company and they were trying to launch a new set of kitchen utilities, uh, kitchen appliances. And when you're launching kitchen appliances, who does it make sense to interview? It makes sense to interview uh, cooks, uh, at-home cooks, professional chefs, yeah. anybody who cooks. You definitely don't want to interview people who don't cook because people who don't cook don't give you information about kitchen appliances. But yet... When the company was launching the new kitchen appliances, they hired a design consultancy to help them. And they ended up interviewing people who don't cook. <laughs> and so they went on missions or trips with these people who don't cook. Um, and, you know, they sat with them as the car as they went through drive throughs and they pulled up to a Taco Bell and the guy was looked into the window and was like, you know what? That's the bad employee. I don't like this employee. Let's go to um, Chipotle instead. And, they experienced a day in the life of people who love food, but who don't like cooking. They saw how these people interacted with the food around them, how they um, interacted with, with fast food stores, how they interacted with um, dining out at nice restaurants. And they clearly, clearly had this appreciation for food, but yet didn't cook at home. So that begs the question, why? And why, in my opinion, is a really powerful word for my my designer, my definition of designer to ask, because asking why um, allows you to find the problem. Problems don't just exist in the world. You can't just look at one and find it. You have to ask why, and you have to ask why multiple times to get to the root of it. So if you ask this guy, um, you know, who, who does takeout but loves food, why do you do this instead of cooking? He's going to say it's easier, but why is it easier? And if you ask why enough times, um, you'll get to the fact that this guy did this because he hated cleaning. He didn't cook because he hated cleaning. Yeah. So what you mean. the company <clears throat> ended up designing a line of kitchen appliances that were self-cleaning. By interviewing someone who was not in their target market segment, they ended up discovering an entirely new one and was able to cater a brand new line of kitchen appliances that ended up becoming super high selling to someone they never thought to ask. And so that's, that's, 
designer in the traditional sense in the world that I come from, a problem solver, someone who can identify issues in the community and create solutions for them. Yeah. Though I, I, even though this is my definition of designer, I'm not elitist about the term. I think it's fine for people in the community to call themselves designer, whether they're picking colors for sets, whether they're, you know, making novelties in Illustrator, whether they're, you know, doing renders for people, whether they're designing keyboards. These are all forms of design. And I think really, you know, if we had a bit more nuance for the terminal for the term in, in English, because it's kind of a very whole encapsulating term. Um, we wouldn't be having this this new conversation, but I think it's still an, an interesting to, one to have. Yeah. Do you think? But do you think that that still today uh, people tend to to approach the that topic that way? You know what I mean? Do do people do do you feel yourself as again a designer, someone that 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 creates uh, key sets and boards? Do you feel that you still have that feedback about people going like, oh, these guys are just choosing colors? Or do you think it really toned down a bit? I've definitely heard it. Um, you know, one of my good friends, uh, Phantom Taco, he calls himself a Crayola picker. Um, he doesn't call himself a designer. And and I've heard from other people, you know, in, in DMs and in servers that, you know, they don't necessarily like the term designer being applied to keyboards. They're like, you know, car designers, those are designers. But, you know, picking colors for a keyboard, that's not design. And to an extent, I agree with them, right? There's definitely a different level of design that goes into a car versus picking or, or, or designing a, a, a theme for a set um, and designing a mood behind a set. But yeah, it's, it, it's funny. There's no better word for it in English. Yeah, so exactly. So kind of just have to deal with it. That, that was that, that was what I was going to say. It's, it's a funny thing because, again, I, me being Portuguese, we have, you know, in English, you could also call it like a creator, which is not the mm -hmm. same term in Portuguese, you know, a cre or a creative person. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it is, I think it's a, it's a lot about that. It's that, that there's this word called designer in English and it's all encompassing, right? And, and it, yeah. can, it can lead to a lot of it. Anyway, so... If I was someone in the hobby wanting to do a key set, right? Would would you know a new person? Would there be any tips that you would like to give us? You having you know created so far three, I, I believe three. If, correct me if I'm wrong. If not more, uh, four key sets. Four. There you go. Um, would you give us some some you know tips about the process? You know, some people again, like we were saying, thinks that it's just like choosing colors, uh, but we do know that it's not that simple. You know, anything that happened, um, you know, any hurdle that you found your way when you're doing it, any tips of what people should be looking out for? Yeah. Um, so start with a mood. Start with an idea. Um, start with a feeling. Oh. Don't start with colors. Oh, you were thinking, I was thinking, here I was thinking about, I'm going to do a key set because I want to make money. Huh? No. <laughs> Yeah, so I think this is something that I kind of discovered after making Ursa, because Ursa was built around a mood, right? It was built around like the serenity of nature, you know, standing in a forest in the in the winter, you know. Um it's it's calm, it's crisp, it's calming, right? A, a potted plant in a white ceramic uh, you know, pot. Yes. And after after I made Ursa and um, oh, I guess th th this theme kind of played into the novelty design of Ursa as well, because I wanted those novelties to carry that. They needed to be clean, right? Which is why I went for this almost almost single line stroke appearance, where yeah. they're like clean and outlined. And, you know, they don't have, except for the Paddington key, they don't have any sort of interior shading or anything like that. It's just very crisp motifs. After I did Ursa, I wanted to do another set, right? It's because I love that creation process. And I started doing it by going to like colors.adobe.com and just like scrolling through color palettes and seeing if like there was something I liked or, you know, just like randomizing color palettes until I found something. And sure, there was a bunch of cool color palettes, but nothing ever came from a single one of those sets. And it's because looking for, if you're looking for inspiration, you rarely find it, at least yeah. in my experiences. Inspiration finds you. Um, and you kind of just need to deal with that. If there's a long pause in there, like there's a long pause in there. There was a long time between Ursa and Amalfi um, 
right? It was eight, eight months, nine months. Yeah. But then that, that inspiration struck for Amalfi, right? I was having, talking with, with my good friend, Steph from uh, switchkeys.com.au. Um, and, you know, we were talking about his, his ancestral land of the Amalfi coast and, you know, like talking about the pottery from there and we're like, let's make a key set out of this. There was this moment of inspiration where we're like, wow, these are some beautiful colors and we can really do something unique here. And then again, there was this pause, you know, I, I created a few interim designs that were like, you know, they were pretty, but a little bit just more like holdovers. And then I came across this inspiration of Polybius, about these arcade motifs um, to really make something unique. The last set though, um, Shan Shui, who I'm making in collaboration with uh, Grunelamir, that's based off of uh, GMK Huhai, which was originally going to come first, but then we swapped the order of the sets based on, you know, just to get the legends made. Huhai was also made off of an idea, right? Knights in Beijing. Um, it was, how do I capture the essence of, of, you know, Grunelamir was asking, how do I capture the essence of my experiences while I was living there? The neon lights, the darkness, the little bit of smogginess. Um, and Huhai does that beautifully, in my opinion. And then, you know, it had these beautiful, beautiful legends on it. But, you know, we immediately ran into concerns about Huhai is maybe not the colorway for everybody. So how do we turn, um, how do we make sure that these legends get made in a set that will be, you know, expensive off the bat? Um, and so we came up with Shanshui, which was just uh, white on black um, with the kanji sublegends. And the term Shanshui, it's, it's black on white, ink painting. Okay. Um, and yeah. it's, you know, this beautiful form of artistry that comes Correct. Um, from, from Northern China. And that, you know, those motifs carry into the novelties that carry into the desk mats. Um, and I think that, you know, they kind of really tie the set together. So even, even in black on white and white on black, you can, you know, pull stuff out of there and, and create these experiences. And that's what I love as, as a, a color, as a, as a, as a key set designer is these inspirations that lend design to me. Um, and so that's my advice to people like let inspiration find you. Don't just go picking three colors that you think look good together because, you know, it, it's rarely going to come out then in my opinion. But now I have a question for you on that because, you know, me, myself, I had an idea for a key set at a certain point and I spoke about it with, on the episode with Jay that I had this, you know, for me, brilliant idea for a key set and I sort of come together with the colors and everything. And then all of a sudden I speak to Jay and he goes like, oh yeah, that's exactly whatever name this set. You know what I mean? So this is something that obviously with the tons of sets that are coming out, uh, that's definitely something that, you know, you can come up with an idea that someone else already replicated or it's similar to something, right? Is, was it hard for you? Uh, obviously, Ursa is something different, but is it hard for you also? Do you really consider that too when you're, you know, you come up with the concept, you come up with the ideas? Do you go and scour uh, all of the group buys and all of the interest checks to make sure that there's nothing similar to it? Or if it is similar, how you handle it? So I don't, really i don't launch sets that are similar to other things um and you know the line of similarity it can be close so for example a lot of people would say amalfi amalfi is similar to gmk deku but amalfi existed long before gmk deku um and in fact so i was amalfi i'd been working on since january of 2020 and it ended up launching in august so it was a long time between the initial concept renders and the launch and i think the ic only went up in maybe april or so or yeah. if not later, maybe May. Um, and the reason it took so long between April and May, I uh, said January and May, is because I never rush a set to IC. I let, I, I constantly iterate. I mean, you know, Polybius, the first concept renders were done in March and the IC launched in December or late November. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to the story about Amalfi and Deku. Um, I was showing off Amalfi in the uh, Keycap Designer Discord back when I was still a, um, an admin there and we had just launched it. And, you know, some other people were saw it and were like, oh, this is really cool. And that, you know, the designer of GMK Deku was kind of like, oh, hey, this looks like this set that 
concept that I just created like, you know, 20 minutes ago. And I was like, hey, this looks really cool, but it's kind of similar to to Amalfi. Would you mind holding off on posting IC for this until I run Amalfi later this year? I've been working on this set for a long time. It means a lot to me, right? Like I, you just did your first renders yesterday. Like it was his first renders ever. Like he was just learning to render like, yeah, you know, you need some more time with this set anyway. And he ended up just posting Deku like three days later. Um, and so a lot of people will go ahead and say like, Amalfi is very similar to Deku, but Amalfi came first. And so that one, that one is definitely my closest set I've ever ran. And I do feel a little bit, you know, strange about that whole situation. But otherwise, yeah, I don't run sets that are close to other things. And when you do that, you do definitely need to go looking for inspiration in other places. In terms of three-color GMK sets, they've kind of all been done. Even in terms of IDE sets, which, you know, your standard, like, you know, a dark mods, slightly lighter alphas, and then you have a different color um, novelty, uh, a different color, you know, legend yeah. text on every row, right? Like GMK Dracula, GMK Oblivion, um, Right. They there there's a lot of potential there for, for IDE sets and there's been a lot of them done, but you're also kind of starting to hit the end of the road. And so Polybius for me was this like great way to say like, hey, you can still do things that are unique and new. Here's this great world of pad printing. Um and you can apply this to key sets and you can create absolutely insanely unique things. You can go ahead and you know, do what you might think of an as an IDE set where I was just, you know, some sort of basic thing uh, with different colors on every row, but you can just go balls to the wall with it and create something super unique. And then also with GMK Shanshui and GMK Huhai, um, you know, Huhai is entirely Grundelmir, but GMK Shanshui at the very least, it's like, it's new because the sub-legends are new, right? Nobody has ever made kanji sub-legends on a keyboard. And in fact, we put probably hundreds of man hours between the two of us into making the legends um, just so they'll exist for the community. So in the end, to be honest, in the end, everything is just, uh, you know, GMK Olivia with different colors. Correct. That's what everyone yeah. says, So right? the, the takeaway from the story is everything is Olivia. Yeah, Especially exactly. GMK Cafe. <laughs> Cafe is beautiful, man. Uh, you know, on that note, and we're going to talk about Ursa now, in the following question, but uh, you were very close between Cafe and, and Ursa. They were both very close for me in which one to get, and I ended up getting Ursa. I love it. Uh, not really thank you, thank you. upset about it, but you know, Cafe is also beautiful, to be honest. But I, I funnily enough, Cafe still came came into the time when I was looking at you know uh, Reddit and thinking $150 for a key set. These guys are completely mental. You know, that time mm -hmm. of, of, but then obviously, you know, got better to me. And then I'm so happy that I got Ursa. But so talking about GMK Ursa, right? An amazingly clean set, beautiful balance. Thank you. Uh, the colors are beautiful. You know, I, I loved thank how you, toned you. down, honestly. And this is not, you know, again, not uh, shining your shoes or whatever. It's just because I really got it because I really loved it. And, you know, when I got it, it was beautiful right? Was any main constraint when designing it? So, or better yet, the question would be probably, you know, when you got it in front of you, was this really how you had envisioned it from the get-go and from the renders? Or did you have to concede with regards to colorways in any specific form? Honestly, no. Ursa, Ursa really turned out. I, I love this set. Um, when I first started designing it, I kind of wanted to stick to the stock color palette as much as possible, just because I had ordered a color ring from GMK and that's what I had, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to work off colors I could see and not colors, colors on a monitor. And so like, um, at first it was still US one when I posted the IC, ended up changing it to CP based on the advice of a bunch of people. And that was definitely for the better. Um, and 3A is just a beautiful, beautiful green. I really love it. Um, it is. And so the combination between those two are great, but the brown that's in the gmk color ring br1 is awful i like it was just not the right brown i needed something desaturated i needed something calming um a little bit more walnutty 
that was kind of the look I was going for, like a, maybe like a, a satin finished um, walnut. And so I ended up getting myself an RAL book, flipping through them. And I found, um, I found, you know, this beautiful grayish beige brown color that I ended up, you know, going for, for the mod color Versa. And I think it, it really, really turned out. It's got this like plant Suiting. in a white pot vibe vibe yeah. it's you know out in the forest in the snow it's it's soothing it's calming you like looking at the set because it it allows you to breathe yeah. in fact the original set name for the set before i named it ursa was gmk breathe because that's the that was the vibe i wanted to go for it i wanted you to like look at it and go <sighs> right yeah so so it's funny because one of the reasons why I got Ursa was, you know, and I was looking at key sets, uh, especially for work, right? I was looking at a key set that I want to be able to use that, this at work. And, you know, there's already tons of people thinking that I'm crazy on spending the amount of money I spend on keyboards <laughs> at work. Um, but I obviously I didn't want to come in with a, all these, you know, really shocking colors or whatever. And, and what I found about Ursa is that you know I love the the concept. I love the you know like like you said on the on the Intersec and everything, you know that concept of you know mountains and green and all of that. And and it really shows on the set that concept. Like we were speaking before on on the other question about having a concept and working towards that. Right? It really worked. Now, yeah. being a part of the ISO gang gang that I am, <laughs> we need to bring up your novelty ISO. Right, uh, for me, the best ISO enter ever so far, you know, with a very close Thank second you. being the international kit ISO. That they're very close, but you know, obviously this ISO is much better. And again, um, you already mentioned the, the the name, but I wanted to to say that, you know, I assume that this was done with UK ISO in mind because the addition of that pair, which we definitely know that it's you know Paddington, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what made you come up with the idea of Paddington? On the set, believe it or not, it was um, Miguel Fara slash uh, this pleated Vespine who started the whole thing. I don't think he commented on the Ursa thread specifically, but I was reading another thread that had similar kidding. Uh, I think it was Jim K Botanical, and it had kind of similar kidding to mine in terms of ISO compatibility. And he was this was back when he was doing his famous like Atlantic ISO rants on Jack, um, yeah. talking about like Opal <laughs> ISO compatibility. And I kind of went to him and I was like, you know, how can I do ISO better uh, for, for Ursa? Uh, because I have, you know, the same, you know, Atlantic quote unquote ISO that, that you know, you don't like in my set. He's like, you know, you can add all of these keys. And I'm like, oh, if that's a lot of keys to add to my base kit, that's already kind of a little bit expensive. And, you know, it was my first set. I wanted to keep it, keep it, you know, clean, yeah. tidy. I didn't want to go crazy. So I decided to put ISO into a separate kit. Yeah. Um, and then I was talking with ABEC and we were talking about attach rates for ISO. And he's like, you know, it's, it's typically pretty low attachment rates for ISO, same like as it is for Norda, same as it is for numpads. Um, and I made, I wanted to make sure that ISO would hit mock, um, and, you know, so that URSA would have comp compatibility for, you know, users in, in the United Kingdom and, you know, in other countries that, you know, use ISO interkeyship the very least physical compatibility. And so he came up with the idea of putting a novelty onto the ISO enter. And at first we had, you know, we just took the bear, turned it 90 degrees and slapped it on there. And I was like, you know what? No, it's gotta be more special. Um, and so I kind of slept on it and I woke up and I was like, duh, British bear Paddington. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so from there, it was kind of just like an iterative process of how do I design a novelty that's still a bit faithful to the design language of the set and the other novelties, but also invokes the spirits of our favorite British bear. Um, yeah. So it's a little bit of a compromising novelty. It doesn't exactly fit into the Ursa aesthetic, but it fits into the Ursa aesthetic while also, you know, being a clear motif of, of what it is, in my opinion. And to be honest, like you were saying, you were saying about, about the added, the addition of the novelty on the UK ISO set, you know, and I can say that I probably got it because of that. Because, you know, yeah. like you were saying, you know, if you have to spend that amount of money just for 
uh, let's say, what, four keys or five keys, it, it makes you, you know, a bit of, it, it's a hard sell, right? Yeah. I mean, it was just like that thing where, like, it, it became super obvious once I thought of it. And I think it led to the success of an Apple Tea kit. If mm -hmm. it hadn't been in there, there wouldn't have been so much success in it to the kit. And, you know, I personally don't think so, but I've had, you know, a few people tell me um, that they think that, you know, the Paddington ISO started like a trend of, of unique um, ISO uh, novelties and designs. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's, it's nice to be able to, to say that, like, I played a part in, you know, kind of design history uh, for that one. Yeah, we have talked before, you know, in Discord and stuff, but people say, and it's true, the ISO Enter has such, you know, such a big real real estate to 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 build something mm -hmm. on it, right? Compared to to the to the NC Enter, and again, don't get me wrong, yep. I'm an ISO guy, and Enters need to be big. You need to go Enter. That's what I'm going to do. Enter, not really Enter. Yeah, no, bring but, back uh, uh, big ass Enters. Exactly, bring back big ass Enters. When you do Enter, you really want to say to computer. Enter. That's what you want to tell. Yeah. But anyway, uh, but I think it's it's there's a big real estate there that you can actually work on it a lot. You can do different, uh, um, you know, novelties on there that you could do with other key sets, which is good. You know. Now we need to shift a bit and talk about uh, something else, which is you know there's a lot of talk about most keyboards are just metal rectangles. We all know that. That's everyone. Everyone says that that they are basically metal rectangles. But we have to talk about the evolve, right? For for me, an in a very innovative design with regards to the bottom part of it, uh, and not to mention the original plate. That I know that it was changed from the original. But you know, do you feel that there's a lack of aggressive design ideas on keyboards at the moment? No, um, and I think it's it's a pretty simple no for me because. Uh, if everything was aggressive, nothing would be aggressive. Or if everything was aggressive, we would be dull to aggressiveness um, and to, to innovation. You also need uh, a healthy constant influx of more quote-unquote standard boards because there's always new people joining the hobby and they need something to buy as well. Um, if we, you know, we need things like tofus, we need things like... Uh, Q clones just because they're good, hard, trustworthy boards that people can buy into. Um, yeah, so I, I personally don't think there's any sort of lack of aggressive design. There's a really healthy balance right now, in my opinion. In your case, right? When you when you made the, the, the this decision to go with Evolve and with that back, you know, with that bottom uh, stem design, what made you decide to challenge the current manufacturing processes in that way and just go, you know what? I'm going to try and decide, design something completely different than the normal thing that exists. Again, it was this thing of inspiration, right? Um, I think I was hanging out in a 3 server at the time when we were talking about limitations of fusion and keyboard design. I was like, you know what? I really, I've been wanting, to, I had, by that time, I'd been really wanting to design a keyboard for a little bit, for a little while. And I was like, you know what? I really, really want to try playing with these generative design tools for keyboard because I'd used them before for, for robotics um, and for, you know, uh, CNC manufacturing, so six axis stuff. Um, and it like worked to great effect on robotics. You know, the parts were, I think, like 50% lighter, double the strength. So what we originally designed, which is crazy. Um, and so I was like, let's, I, and I love the aesthetic of it, this organic feeling, the tendrilness of it, it you know, and I wanted to put it into a keyboard. And so that's kind of where the original inspiration for Evolve came out to, like, how do I make a keyboard that looks like it was, you know, grown out of the ground almost, that has this organic feeling to it. And it, it, it was such an iterative process and I'm still iterating it. You know, I'm about to ship out, I have them packed behind me the uh, proto evolves that are going to friends of mine, but I've already changed the base design for the uh, GB version of the board to be even more organic, to be even crazier. Um, and then it was just a matter of figuring out how do I manufacture it. First, I went to middle 3D printing. That didn't work at all. So then I kind of went to, you know, uh, lost wax casting. That was super expensive. I'm still holding on to that for like a super high-end FE version of the boards. 
But, you know, now I'm back to, oh, wait, if, what if we just did the board top in aluminum and the bottom in polycarbonate? Because that's a nice combo that a lot of boards do, like uh, the slip line, the TMO50 V2. Yeah. Um, and it also looks great when you have uh, underglow on your PCB. So now, like, the final GB versions of the board have these, like, clean, crisp aluminum tops and then these insane uh, polycarbonate bottoms that are just balls to the wall, organic insanity. So that that was actually my my next question. And again, uh, from the initial renders that I saw and the concept to the first prototype, I know that that you know you received the first prototype. You noticed that you know it was the three D printing metal wasn't really up to par. Um, you know, were those any the, those really surprises for you, or were you already ex expecting something like that to 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 happen? Uh, both. I mean, so. There is, there are no final products without iteration. I never expected to get it right on the first try, especially for my first keyboard. Um, you have to iterate to get things right. Um, that's just, you know, how, how the world works. And in fact, I love iteration. It's my favorite part of the design process. Uh, the final product is cool and all, but like I treasure the iterations much more than I treasure the final product because they're the steps that got me to where I was. Um, back when I did, you know, uh, comp competitive robotics in like high school and things like that. And right. My favorite process of building the robots was not the final CAD or the final assembly. Um, it was getting there. It was, you know, if we're building a mechanism that, uh, shoots balls into holes, like first you start by, you know, catapulting with your hand you're like okay catapults could work what if we tried putting it through spinning wheels and you're like literally just holding the motors in your hands as you feed the ball through and you're like whoa that's got some kick now you go ahead over to the laser cutter like laser cut some basic guide rails for the ball to follow and some mounts for the motors just to get a little bit more consistent of a mount and you like launch the ball a few times okay let's change the angles let's change the mounting position let's change the wheels it's this process of iteration that's the real high for me um, I love going through through version after version after version and letting the design almost find itself. Now, on that note, how many prototypes do you have from Evolve so far? <laughs> I don't know. I lost count after a little bit. Uh, some of the prototypes I don't even have. Some of the prototypes, um, you know, like we're just done. We're just done in China for casting stuff. Um, some of them were like you know small scale three D printed prototypes to test plates. There's there's been a lot. Some of the prototypes were only digital, right? And I found a good way to start testing like plate stiffness entirely digitally with, you know, finite element analysis. And there was like a process I did where, you know, you can simulate each keystroke individually over time cool. um, and simulate typing. And so, you know, after a while I started doing digital prototyping. It's still a prototype, you know, because it's even though it's not made, you're still testing things and getting results. Um, Got it. So yeah, there was there was a lot of work done and a lot of lot of iterations, probably over a hundred. You're telling me, so you're telling me that it's not something that just draw on a piece of paper and then all of a sudden you make it happen. Oh, not not the evolve. No. <laughs> Joking, man. So you acknowledge a lot of people in your IC that have helped you develop the, this board, right? Can you tell Can you tell us a bit about how this happened and, you know. Uh, I find that the most positive side of the hobby is the people that you meet and make friends with. Was this mm -hmm. your experience also when when you started and when you did, went onto this the design route? Yeah. So I think the the first person uh, who I like to thank and probably the most influential in making of the evolve and, and welcoming me to the keyboard design of the hobby the side of the hobby was Luke Barron from uh, Smith and Rune. No, Luke. He's yeah. the nicest person. I really, really love Luke. He was great to talk to. He's so welcoming, so helpful. I remember when I first PM'd him too, because I had questions about how he did the um, you know, the plate on the Iron 165. And I messaged him at first I messaged Vox, because Vox posted the IC and I thought it was him, and it was like a big paragraph, and Vox is like, go message Luke. And I dropped this huge paragraph on Luke. It was like freaking essay. I sent him in my first DM and he's like, whoa, ho, ho, ho. He reads through it and it just like got to like a really good relationship with him. And he's like the sweetest guy. I really, really like him. I should DM him, ask him how he's doing. It's been a little while since we chatted. Um, so he's, yeah, love, lovely, lovely man who helped me a lot. Um, 
Abeck, I also think he was just great into like kind of easing me into, you know, social online interaction. Because again, uh, before this community, I never really hung out with people online. And so like Abeck was probably one of my first friends in the hobby and he did the renders for Ursa for me. And like, you know, he was always like a great person to talk to when I had questions about things and, um, you know, was trying to learn the hobby. Um, and, and everybody else along the way, uh, Yangsta, who is this Australian acoustic engineer, um, I met who, you know, helped teach me a bunch of stuff about, uh, vibrations and the way they propagate, um, mechanist who helped me with, you know, defining my brand and my image, uh, all my friends over at, you know, like bottom clunk who were just like great people to talk to all of the people who bought into the, you know, friend, friends and family group by, you know, like they're willing to stick with me as I prototype and grow my brands. Um, there's just so many, so many people. And in the end, it's just like, you know, a great community. Yeah. It, it, it's funny, right? Because you have the, you had the same experience that I had, you know, messaging certain people and, you know, and we spoke about this in the podcast before, but, you know, you look at certain people like the unobtainables, right? These people mm -hmm. that are there, right? You you mentioned Luke, you know, I uh, I mentioned a lot of other people. You know, our our Christmas special we, we was with Jairus uh, Khan, you know, uh, the, the vintage keyboard meister, right? And when I messaged yeah. him, I never thought that, you know, I messaged him, I was like, he's never going to answer, right? Uh, but is it, isn't it curious that people are so open and so friendly in the end? Right, it, it's mm -hmm. not one of those uh, communities where people don't. Oh, you know, who is this guy? Right, I find that people are uh, very, very friendly because in our our community, I find that it's very friendly. That's one of the reasons why I stayed in the community, and I really love it. It's because of that, because of all the inclusion that we have. Right, it's not just because we all like keyboards, you know. And I normally say that we come for 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 the boards and we stay for the people, and it yep. ends up being like that. Right, a hundred percent. So, as a side joke, you've mentioned about the Evolve being able to withstand a truck running over <laughs> it, right? Uh, now, I assume that this is obviously because of all the mathematical calculations at the time, uh, with the chassis, integrity, etc. Uh, is this the case with, the, like you said, with the new prototype with the with the acrylic bottom? I wouldn't assume so myself, but you know, if you get to ever get to do an FE version, you know. All metal. Are you willing to bet that this is the case, even with the new processes of manufacturing? And who would be the brave person to do it? That's my question. So even with the polycarbonate kit bottom, it's still the case um, because that's how I generate the that's how I generate the uh, bottom design, right? If I only put like you know ten newtons on it, which you know, like it's a decent amount. It's not a lot, but it's a decent amount uh, enough for what you'd ever put on your desk. You know it. It just looks ugly. The bottom is too thin. So I put, you know, weight of 10 trucks on it or something like that. Um, and, and then the bottom starts to look cool. Then you start to get really thick tendrils in a, this organic structure. Um, and so you need to put a lot of weight on the bottom in order to make it look cool. Will it withstand a truck placed directly on it? Yes. Will the um, other internal elements withstand a truck? No. So, for example, on the internal, you have the gasket mounting system, you have the sides, you have all of the little tabs that you screw into um, to assemble the board. Like all of these little things, they're definitely, definitely not going to uh, withstand the truck. But like if you filled it in or if you cut all of that off and you just had the bottom yeah, uh, and you roll the truck over it, yeah, it'd be fine. Cool, cool. Now, other than keyboards... Are there any other hobbies that you are into? You mentioned robotics and building robotics. Mm -hmm. So uh, anything else that you are really go geek into it? Um, for, for, uh, keyboards are by far like the biggest, the biggest thing that I, I do. I'm um, outside of keyboards. I love PC building, but like this is not, I, I have one, I already have one big money pit, so I don't need a second. I have my <laughs> PC and it's great and I love it, but I'm not, you know, looking to build another anytime soon. Um, uh, I do, I do love, uh, of course, um, racing. That's something I do a lot, actually, like, uh, go-karting with friends. Mm. Um, I love, uh, you know, watching F1, talking about F1. 
uh, you know, no, 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 outside of things like that, gaming, robotics, I guess, uh, combat robotics, uh, comp competitive robotics, those are always fun to do. Um, yeah, kind of just all all sorts of things. I really like just like a, a range of items. I guess like keyboards is like the hobbies I'm the deepest in, but otherwise I'm into like a bunch of other things at like a peripheral level, I guess. Cool. So you mentioned F1, right? So I have to ask mm -hmm. you, who is your favorite driver so far? Who is my favorite driver so far? Mm -hmm. um, okay, this this is a difficult question. Um, for I've been I've been a Verstappen fan for a long time. Okay. I really like Max, um, but I don't know. Recently, he's kind of been getting a little bit dull for me, as well as like everything that's going on with Red Bull. I liked Albon. But his performances aren't the best. No, I'm excited to see what Checo been. can do in the car yeah. next year. Um, I guess I, I love Vettel. I don't like Ferrari, but I love Vettel. Uh, but if I had if I had to pick a number one driver, I think I'd have to go for either Daniel Ricciardo or Lando Norris. Yeah, Danny Rick is uh, and Lando are so, such a cool character. Yeah. So and they're going to be on the same same team yeah. next year. McLaren, McLaren is probably my favorite team now. It used to be Red Bull. Red Bull used to be my number one, but yeah. I think now it's McLaren. I, I'm curious to see how how um, how this will play along because we've seen that Ricardo is you know although he's uh, the you know the nice uh, you know Australian, he's not that nice. You know he has this fierce side to him so you know so yeah. the honey badger right so so i'm curious to see how it plans out with with lando if they they do get into the same type of vibe how how will they hang around you know if it's going mm -hmm. to be as 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 it was um but yeah but other than don't than the current season do you have a you know a favorite ever f1 idol that you look up to so i started watching f1 rather recently okay. so most of cool. the drivers i really like are you know modern day drivers of did course, you, you did know, you start yeah. watching because of drive to survive out of curiosity just no, a question. no 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 i started okay. watching before drive to survive how, how do you watching, feel um, drive to survive have you seen it? i love it it's fantastic yeah. it's yeah. super good it's you know it's definitely a little bit played up but i don't care it's like it's hilarious i love it yeah, but but you find it one of, one of the things I liked about it is that it, it it is a series that actually introduces Formula One to people that are not into Formula One. Mm -hmm. You know, it gives you obviously to us that we like it and we follow it. It's different, but uh, I find it it's a very good balance because we even us that like it we enjoy the series because it, it's actually yeah. a good a good thing about because Formula One. It's got one, a lot right? of good behind the scenes that you guys never ever see. But what I found is that they actually have this angle to the people that never, you know, saw it. And so it's, it's, it's actually, and I'm very, very curious about this season. I'm very curious how, how it's going to turn out this season. You know, there's, yeah. there's some magnificent, magnificent stories out there for, for yeah, this season. Yeah, for sure. Right. Spe speaking about it, Jesus, the accident with, uh, you know, the, this latest accident, which is a miracle how he survived. It's, it's, yeah. it's a miracle how how he got out that was of that car. was insane. I insane. remember I was watching there. I okay, so like I was in the East Coast at the time, um, still in college, and so I'm waking up early to like watch races. Uh, I was like I was like up in bed, um, and I was like had the laptop on me. And I was like still half asleep when the race started, and then yeah. I see him crash. It's like instantly awake. Like holy, what did I'm I just watch? Lie. You know, you know, I was I was watching it live and. And uh, you know, uh, me, Jay, etc. We all always banter on Discord about this. And you know, I saw the accident, and I honestly thought someone died. You know, what I mean, it, yeah, it's one of those that you see, and it's there's no way that that someone gets out of there. Even yeah. you know, Jay and me, we said, you know what, I'm not going to watch anything else. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to keep watching because you know. And then obviously we waited and. You know, for five, ten minutes, nothing is shown. And when they don't show anything, you think that's it. You know, they don't show anything because something serious happened. And, yeah. you know, just seeing him walk out of that, that fireball is just crazy. You know, all, yeah, only yeah, with was, burned hands. That's the only thing that yeah. it, that happened well, was, on top was, of that. It was insane. Because, you know, look, yeah, I'm, I'm waking up in the morning to watch it live. And it was just, I saw it and I was like, 
there there is no way right like because he, he hits the wall and just instant fireball correct and you just have this pit in your stomach where like yeah that's either it. he's the luckiest man in the world or he's just that that's it right it was the same thing with um the antoine hubert crash yeah right you you watch that crash and you see this like you like you see it go crazy and then it's just like they they you know they cut the red flag and it's just like an hour later you still don't know and like but you do know you know yeah yeah and i think you know at the time i was thinking that's it you know uh yeah. and when i when you see him coming out it's just a miracle but that, but that goes yeah. to show the 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 first of all it goes to show two things is that first of all the security that he have today and the safety that these cars have today but also mm-hmm. how dangerous it is because people sort of sort of uh, got desensitized of the danger because you know nothing really happens anymore but these yeah. are machines going at 300 kilometers an hour you know against the wall it's yeah. crazy i mean it was like you had we had senna in 94 yeah, yeah. i saw that i next... i saw it i saw it live man i saw that accident live yeah and then at the very least in f1 you know um others other junior leagues is a different story but uh then then again in 2012 with bianchi but nothing since so yeah. the, i guess there is a little bit of desensitization because like the cars are just perceived as so safe we have Halo. We have so many systems on it, but these accidents can still happen. Yeah. And it, what, what's crazy to me is if this accident happened three years ago in 2017. No, that's it. He would be dead. Th- that that'd be it. Like we, yeah. we wouldn't be having this conversation. And and, and the he, and the you know, most curious thing, by the, barrier. the most curious thing, if you look at it, is that you know, um, he he crashed into a place that technically he wasn't. You know, no one ever crashed. You know that mm-hmm. that's the th- even the scariest thing is that he, he actually crashes into a wall that technically no one is supposed to crash on because it's completely opposite of where they're turning, etc. So, yep. you know, but that goes to show you, right? Yeah. Anyway, don't want to turn this this podcast into an F one podcast, but hey, no. that's something we like. Anyway, uh, last question of the podcast: If you could change something in the keyboard hobby, what would it be? Flipping culture, flipping culture. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that one speaks for itself. <laughs> I think it's a, it's the same thing in a lot of hobbies. Um, in in sneakers, in we just saw it with the Xbox One, uh, with sorry, the Xbox Series Ones, and um, the thirty eighties, etc. Yeah, thirty eighties. Yeah, I, I I think I'm just gonna leave it there. Like I don't want to go into a big rant. Flipping culture. <laughs> Okay, that's it. Now, what's next for Nathan Alphaman? Uh, this is my, my plug time. Yes, yeah, your so, plug time. So uh, January 4th, uh, GMK Polybius launches um, on uh, space cables in the United States, prototypist in the EU, uh, sorry, in the UK, candy keys in the EU, Island KB in Asia, uh, switch keys in Australia, and Ash Keebs in Canada, Pick it up on a vendor near you. Please, please, please. I put a lot of time and effort into the set. It's a great one. I love it. It's fantastic. And uh, January 1st, GMK Shan Shui is uh, launching um, Canon Keys in the United States. Um, we have uh, Candy Keys in the EU. We have uh, Z Frontier for China. We have ILOM for Southeast Asia. We have J uh, and Prototypist for the United Kingdom. We have Desk Hero for Canada. And we have um, Daily Clack for Australia. So go check out both sets. Both have had hundreds upon hours of hours poured into them. They're both fantastic sets. Um, you know, if you can only buy one, only buy one. If you can buy both, I would love you forever. But yeah, that's, that's what's happening with me in the immediate future. Cool. January cool. 1st, Chen Shui, January 4th, GMK Publicus. Well, probably this this episode is coming out after that, but don't worry, guys. I'll put the link show links on, on the show notes. Uh, I, I actually noticed something f- curious, which is you mentioning about about Europe and UK, which is a, f- a thing now, now, unfortunately. It seems to be a, yeah. a thing, right? But um, that's, that's the future. Anyway, um, Nathan, the only thing left is to thank you so, so much for joining. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you thank for having me. It's been a pleasure. I think no we're going on to the 
what are we, hour and a half, hour, 15 minutes or something? Something Don't like that, I guess. It's too long for the ladies and gentlemen at home. Hey, that's how it is, man. They can. I, I, they have been putting up to with us for for uh, up to now. So I'm hoping that people continue to listen to me. So that's uh, me and and my guests, obviously. Uh, but hey, we can only hope. Uh, again, Nathan, yeah. thank you so much for your for for you yeah. for you joining. I really thank you appreciate for you. Me. It was it was such a pleasure. I love being here. Cheers. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, as a as a um, reminder, we have a, a Twitter account uh, at the Thawk where you can. Uh, follow us you get all the notifications of all the new episodes we also have an email address the talk podcast at gmail.com where you can send us emails if you want uh i already had someone uh, figuring out what is the start of the episode what sound we have as the start of the episodes uh he got it right i'm waiting for more people to try and figure it out again thank you guys so much for joining Thank you for listening and you guys have a good one.